0: had found a store of flat, unleavened spice bread in a stone box. Stilgar had destroyed it, saying, Fremen would never leave good food behind them. Ganema had suspected he was mistaken, but it hadn't been worth the argument or the risk. Fremen were changing. Once they'd moved freely across the bled, drawn by natural needs, water, spice, trade. Animal activities had been their alarm clocks, but animals moved to strange new rhythms now while most Fremen huddled close in their old cave warrens within the shadow of the northern shield wall. Spice hunters in the Tansaruft were rare, and only Stilgar's band moved in the old ways. She trusted Stilgar and his fear of Alia. Irulan reinforced his arguments now, reverting to odd Bene Gesserit musings. But on faraway Salusa... Faradun still lived. Some day there would have to be a reckoning. Ghanima looked up at the grey-silver morning sky, questing in her mind. Where was help to be found? Where was there someone to listen when she revealed what she saw happening all around them? The Lady Jessica stayed on Salusa, if the reports were to be believed. And Alia was a creature on a pedestal involved only in being colossal while she drifted farther and farther from reality. Gurney Halleck was nowhere to be found, although he was reported seen everywhere. The Preacher had gone into hiding, his heretical rantings only a fading memory. And Stilgar. She looked across the broken wall to where Stilgar was helping repair the cistern. Stilgar reveled in his role as the Will of the Desert, the price upon his head growing monthly. Nothing made sense anymore. Nothing. Who was this desert demon, this creature able to destroy Khanats as though they were false idols to be toppled into the sand? Was it a rogue worm? Was it a third force in rebellion? Many people. No one believed it was a worm. The water would kill any worm venturing against a Khanat. Many Fremen believed the desert demon was actually a revolutionary band bent on overthrowing Alia's Martinet and restoring Arrakis to its old ways. Those who believed this said it would be a good thing. Get rid of that greedy apostolic succession which did little else than uphold its own mediocrity. Get back to the true religion which Muad'Dib had espoused. A deep sigh shook Ganima. Oh, Leto, she thought. I'm almost glad you didn't live to see these days. i join you myself, but I've a knife yet unblooded. Alia and Faridun, Faridun and Alia. The old baron's her demon, and that can't be permitted. Hara came out of the Dijedida, approaching Ganima with a steady sand-swallowing pace. Hara stopped in front of Ganima, demanded, What do you alone out here? This is a strange place, Hara. We should leave. Stilgar waits to meet someone here. Oh? He didn't tell me that? Why should he tell you everything? Maku? Hara slapped the water pouch which bulged the front of Ganima's robe. Are you a grown woman to be pregnant? I've been pregnant so many times there's no counting them, Ganima said. Don't play those adult child games with me. Hara took a backward step at the venom in Ganima's voice. You're a band of stupids, Ganima said, waving her hand to encompass the Djedida and the activities of Stilgar and his people. I should never have come with you. You'd be dead by now if you hadn't. Perhaps, but you don't see what's right in front of your faces. Who is it that Stilgar waits to meet here? Buer Agarvis. Ghanima stared at her. He is being brought here secretly by friends from Red Chasm Sietch, Hara explained. Alia's little plaything? He is being brought under blindfold. Does Stilgar believe that? Buer asked for the parley. He agreed to all of our terms. Why wasn't I told about this? Stilgar knew you would argue against it. Argue against? This is madness, Harrah scowled. Don't forget that Buer is... his family, Ganima snapped. He's the grandson of Stilgar's cousin. I know, and the Faridun whose blood I'll draw one day is as close a relative to me. Do you think that'll stay my knife? We've had a distrans. No one follows his party. Ganima spoke in a low voice. Nothing good will come of this, Hara. We should leave at once. Have you read an omen? Hara asked. That dead worm we saw, was that stuff that into your womb and give birth to it elsewhere? Ganima raged. I don't like this meeting, nor this place. Isn't that enough? I'll tell Stilgar what you— I'll tell him myself. Ganima strode past Hara, who made the sign of the worm horns at her back to ward off evil. But Stilgar only laughed at Ganimas' fears and ordered her to look for sand trout as though she were one of the children. She fled into one of the Djedida's abandoned houses and crouched in a corner to nurse her anger. The emotion passed quickly, though. She felt the stirring of the inner lives and remembered someone saying, if we can immobilize them, things will go as we plan. What an odd thought! But she couldn't recall who'd said those words. Muad'Dib was disinherited, and he spoke for the disinherited of all time. He cried out against that profound injustice which alienates the individual from that which he was taught to believe, from that which seemed to come to him as a right. The Martinate, an analysis, by Hark Aladar Gurney Halleck sat on the butte at Shulok with his balisette beside him on a spice-fiber rug. Below him the enclosed basin swarmed with workers planting crops. The sand ramp up which the cast-out had lured worms on a spice trail had been blocked off with a new canut. Plantings moved down the slope to hold it. It was almost time for the noon meal, and Halleck had been on the butte for more than an hour, seeking privacy in which to think. Humans did the labor below him, but everything he saw was the work of melange. Leto's personal estimate was that spice production would fall soon to a stabilized one-tenth of its peak in the Harkonnen years. Stockpiles throughout the empire doubled in value at every new posting. 321 liters were said to have bought half of Brun's planet from the Metulli family. The cast-out worked like men driven by a devil, and perhaps they were. Before every meal they faced the Tanzaruft and prayed to Shai-Hulud personified. That was how they saw Leto, and through their eyes Halleck saw a future where most of humankind shared that view. Halleck wasn't sure he liked the prospect. Leto had set the pattern when he'd brought Halleck and the preacher here in Halleck's stolen thopter. With his bare hands, Leto had breached the Shulok Kanat, hurling large stones more than fifty meters. When the cast-out had tried to intervene, Leto had decapitated the first to reach him, using no more than a blurred sweep of his arm. He'd hurled others back into their companions and had laughed at their weapons. In a demon voice he'd roared at them, Fire will not touch me, your knives will not harm me, I wear the skin of Shai The cast-out had recognized him then, and recalled his escape leaping from the butte directly to the desert. They'd prostrated themselves before him, and later had issued his orders. I bring you two guests. You will guard them and honor them. You will rebuild your canat and begin planting an oasis garden. One day I'll make my home here. You will prepare my home. You will sell no more spice, but you will store every bit you collect. On and on he'd gone with his instructions, and the cast-out had heard every word, seeing him through fear-glazed eyes, through a terrifying awe. Here was Shai-Hulud come up from the sand at last. There'd been no intimation of this metamorphosis when Leto had found Halleck with Gadeen al-Fali in one of the small rebel sieches at gar With his blind companion, Leto had come up from the desert along the Old Spice Route, travelling by worm through an area where worms were now a rarity. He'd spoken of several detours forced upon him by the presence of moisture in the sand, enough water to poison a worm. They'd arrived shortly after noon, and had been brought into the stone-walled common room by guards. The memory haunted Halleck now. "'So this is the preacher,' he'd said. Striding around the blind man, studying him, Halleck recalled the stories about him. No still-suit mask hid the old face in Sietch, and the features were there for memory to make its comparisons. Yes, the man did look like the old duke, for whom Leto had been named. Was it a chance likeness? You know the stories about this one? Halleck asked, speaking in an aside to Leto. That he's your father, come back from the desert? I've heard the stories. Halleck turned to examine the boy. Aleto wore an odd stillsuit with rolled edges around his face and ears. A black robe covered it, and sand boots sheathed his feet. There was much to be explained about his presence here, how he'd managed to escape once more. Why do you bring the preacher here? Halleck asked. In Jakarutu they said he works for them. No more. I bring him because Alia wants him dead. So, you think this is a sanctuary? You are his sanctuary. All this time the preacher stood near them, listening but giving no sign that he cared which turn their discussion took. He has served me well, Gurney, Later said. House Atreides has not lost all sense of obligation to those who serve us. House Atreides? I am House Atreides. You fled, Jakarutu, before I could complete the testing which your grandmother ordered, Halleck said, his voice cold. How can you assume? This man's life is to be guarded as though it were your own. Leto spoke as though there were no argument, and he met Halleck's stare without flinching. Jessica had trained Halleck in many of the Bene Gesserit refinements of observation, and he detected nothing in Leto which spoke of other than calm assurance. Jessica's orders remained, though. Your grandmother charged me to complete your education and be sure you're not possessed. I'm not possessed. Just a flat statement. Why did you run away? Namri had orders to kill me no matter what I did. His orders were from Alia. Are you a truth-sayer, then? I am. Another flat statement, filled with self-assurance. And Ghanima as well? No. The preacher broke his silence then. "'turning his blind sockets toward Halleck, but pointing at Leto. "'You think you can test him? "'Don't interfere when you know nothing of the problem or its consequences,' "'Halleck ordered, not looking at the man. "'Oh, I know its consequences well enough,' the preacher said. "'I was tested once by an old woman who thought she knew what she was doing. "'She didn't know, as it turned out.' Halleck looked at him then. You're another truth-sayer? Anyone can be a truth-sayer, even you, the preacher said. It's a matter of self-honesty about the nature of your own feelings. It requires that you have an inner agreement with truth which allows ready recognition. Why do you interfere? Halleck asked, putting hand to Chris Knife. Who was this preacher? I'm responsive to these events, the preacher said. My mother could put her own blood upon the altar, but I have other motives, and I do see your problem. Oh? Halleck was actually curious now. The Lady Jessica ordered you to differentiate between the wolf and the dog, between Ze'eb and Ketleb. By her definition, a wolf is someone with power who misuses that power. However— between wolf and dog there is a dawn period when you cannot distinguish between them. That's close to the mark, Halleck said, noting how more and more people of the Siege had entered the common room to listen. How do you know this? Because I know this planet. You don't understand? Think how it is. Beneath the surface there are rocks, dirt, sediment, sand. That's the planet's memory the picture of its history. It's the same with humans. The dog remembers the wolf. Each universe revolves around a core of being, and outward from that core go all of the memories right out to the surface. Very interesting, Halleck said. How does that help me carry out my orders? Review the picture of your history which is within you. Communicate as animals would communicate. Halleck shook his head. There was a compelling directness about this preacher, a quality which he'd recognized many times in the Atreides, and there was more than a little hint that the man was employing the powers of voice. Halleck felt his heart begin to hammer. Was it possible? "'Jessica wanted an ultimate test, a stress by which the underlying fabric of her grandson exposed itself,' the preacher said. "'But the fabric's always there,' Open to your gaze. Halleck turned to stare at Leto. The movement came of itself, compelled by irresistible forces. The preacher continued, as though lecturing an obstinate pupil. This young person confuses you because he's not a singular being. He's a community. As with any community under stress, any member of that community may assume command. This command isn't always benign, and we get our stories of abomination. But you've already wounded this community enough, Gurney Halleck. Can't you see that the transformation already has taken place? This youth has achieved an inner cooperation which is enormously powerful, that cannot be subverted. Without eyes I see this. Once I opposed him, but now I do his bidding. He is the healer. Who are you? Halleck demanded. I'm no more than what you see. Don't look at me. Look at this person you were ordered to teach and test. He has been formed by crisis. He survived a lethal environment. He is here. Who are you? Halleck insisted. I tell you only to look at this Atreides youth. He is the ultimate feedback upon which our species depends. He'll reinsert into the system the results of its past performance. No other human could know that past performance as he knows it. And you consider destroying such a one. I was ordered to test him, and I've not— But you have! Is he abomination? A weary laugh shook the preacher. You persist in Bene Gesserit nonsense. How they create the myths by which men sleep. Are you Paul Atreides? Halleck asked. Paul Atreides is no more. He tried to stand as a supreme moral symbol while he renounced all moral pretensions. He became a saint without a god, every word a blasphemy. How can you think? Because you speak with his voice. Would you test me now? Beware, Gurney Halleck. Halleck swallowed, forced his attention back to the impassive Leto who still stood calmly observant. Who's being tested? the preacher asked. Is it, perhaps, that the Lady Jessica tests you, Gurney Halleck? Halleck found this thought deeply disturbing, wondering why he let this preacher's words move him but it was a deep thing in Atreides' servants to obey that autocratic mystique. Jessica, explaining this, had made it even more mysterious. Halleck now felt something changing within himself, a something whose edges had only been touched by the Bene Gesserit training Jessica had pressed upon him. Inarticulate fury arose in him. He did not want to change. Which of you plays God, and to what end? the preacher asked. You cannot rely on reason alone to answer that question. Slowly, deliberately, Alec raised his attention from Leto to the blind man. Jessica kept saying he should achieve the balance of Kyrites. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. She called it a discipline without words and phrases, no rules or arguments. It was the sharpened edge of his own internal truth, all engrossing, Something in the blind man's voice, his tone, his manner, ignited a fury which burned itself into blinding calmness within Halleck. Answer my question, the preacher said. Halleck felt the words deepen his concentration upon this place, this one moment and its demands. His position in the universe was defined only by his concentration. No doubt remained in him. This was Paul Atreides, not dead. But returned. And this non-child, Leto. Halleck looked once more at Leto, really saw him. He saw the signs of stress around the eyes, the sense of balance in the stance, the passive mouth with its quirking sense of humor. Leto stood out from his background as though at the focus of a blinding light. He had achieved harmony simply by accepting it. Tell me, Paul, Halleck said, does your mother know? The preacher sighed. To the sisterhood, all achieved harmony simply by accepting it. Tell me, Paul, Halleck said. Does your mother know? The preacher sighed. To the sisterhood, all of it, I am dead. Do not try to revive me. Still not looking at him, Halleck asked, But why does she? She does what she must. She makes her own life. "'Thinking she rules many lives, thus we all play God.' "'But you're alive,' Halleck whispered, "'overcome now by his realisation, "'turning at last to stare at this man younger than himself, "'but so aged by the desert that he appeared to carry twice Halleck's years.' "'What is that?' Paul demanded. "'Alive?' Halleck peered around them at the watching Fremen, "'their faces caught between doubt and awe.' My mother never had to learn my lesson. It was Paul's voice. To be a god can ultimately become boring and degrading. There'd be reason enough for the invention of free will. A god might wish to escape into sleep and be alive only in the unconscious projections of his dream creatures. But you're alive, Halleck spoke louder now. Paul ignored the excitement in his old companion's voice, asked, would you really have pitted this lad against his sister in the test mashhad? What deadly nonsense! Each would have said, no, kill me, let the other live. Where would such a test lead? What is it then to be alive, Gurney? That was not the test, Halleck protested. He did not like the way the Fremen pressed closer around them, studying Paul, ignoring Leto. But Leto intruded now. Look at the fabric, father. Yes, yes, Paul held his head high as though sniffing the air. It's Faradun, then. How easy it is to follow our thoughts instead of our senses, Plato said. Halleck had been unable to follow this thought, and about to ask was interrupted by Leto's hand upon his arm. Don't ask, Gurney. You might return to suspecting that I'm abomination. No, let it happen, Gurney. If you try to force it, you'll only destroy yourself but Halleck felt himself overcome by doubts. Jessica had warned him. They can be very beguiling, these pre-born. They have tricks you've never even dreamed. Halleck shook his head slowly. And Paul. Gods below, Paul alive and in league with this question mark he'd fathered. The Fremen around them could no longer be held back. They pressed between Halleck and Paul, between Leto and Paul, shoving the two to the background. The air was showered with hoarse questions. Are you Muad'Dib? Are you truly Muad'Dib? Is it true what he says? Tell us. You must think of me only as the preacher, Paul said, pushing against them. I cannot be Paul Atreides or Muad'Dib, never again. I'm not Cheney's mate or emperor. Halleck Fearing what might happen if these frustrated questions found no logical answer, was about to act when Leto moved ahead of him. It was there Halleck first saw an element of the terrible change which had been wrought in Leto. A bull voice roared, Stand aside! and Leto moved forward, thrusting adult Fremen right and left, knocking them down, clubbing them with his hands, wrenching knives from their hands by grasping the blades. In less than a minute... Those Fremen still standing were pressed back against the walls in silent consternation. Leto stood beside his father. When Shai Hulud speaks, you obey, Leto said. And when a few of the Fremen had started to argue, Leto had torn a corner of rock from the passage wall beside the room's exit and crumbled it in his bare hands, smiling all the while. I will tear your sietch down around your faces, he said. The Desert Demon, someone whispered. And your canats, Leto agreed. I will rip them apart. We have not been here. Do you hear me? Heads shook from side to side in terrified submission. No one here has seen us, Leto said. One whisper from you, and I will return to drive you into the desert without water. Halleck saw hands being raised in the warding gesture of the sign of the worm. We will go now, my father and I, accompanied by our old friend, Leto said. Make our thopter ready. And Leto had guided them to Shulok then, explaining en route that they must move swiftly because Faradon will be here on Arrakis very soon, and as my father has said, then you'll see the real test, Gurney. Looking down from the Shulok Butte, Halleck asked himself once more, as he asked every day, What test? What does he mean? But later was no longer in Shulok, and Paul refused to answer. Church and state, scientific reason and faith, the individual and his community, even progress and tradition, all of these can be reconciled in the teachings of Muad'Dib. He taught us that there exist no intransigent opposites except in the beliefs of men. Anyone can rip aside the veil of time. You can discover the future in the past or in your own imagination. Doing this, you win back your consciousness in your inner being. You know, then, that the universe is a coherent whole, and you are indivisible from it. The Preacher at Arakin After Harkal Adah. Ganima sat far back outside the circle of light from the spice lamps and watched this Muir Agavis. She didn't like his round face and agitated eyebrows, his way of moving his feet when he spoke, as though his words were a hidden music to which he danced. He's not here to parley with, still. Ganima told herself, seeing this confirmed in every word and movement from this man. She moved farther back away from the council circle. Every siech had a room such as this one, but the meeting hall of the abandoned Djedida struck Ganima as a cramped place because it was so low. Sixty people from Stilgar's band, plus the nine who'd come with Garvis, filled only one end of the hall. Spice-oil lamps reflected against low beams which supported the ceiling. The light cast wavering shadows which danced on the walls, and the pungent smoke filled the place with the smell of cinnamon. The meeting had started at dusk after the moisture, prayers, and evening meal. It had been going on for more than an hour now, and Ganima couldn't fathom the hidden currents in Agave's performance. His words appeared clear enough, but his motions and eye movements didn't agree. Agaves was speaking now, responding to a question from one of Stilgar's lieutenants, a niece of Harra's named Rajia. She was a darkly ascetic young woman whose mouth turned down at the corners, giving her an air of perpetual distrust. Ganima found the expression satisfying in the circumstances. "'Certainly I believe Alia will grant a full and complete pardon to all of you,' Agavis said. "'I'd not be here with this message otherwise.' Stilgar intervened as Rajia made to speak once more. I'm not so much worried about our trusting her as I am about whether she trusts you. Stilgar's voice carried growling undertones. He was uncomfortable with this suggestion that he return to his old status. It doesn't matter whether she trusts me, Agave said. To be candid about it, I don't believe she does. I've been too long searching for you without finding you, but I've always felt she didn't really want you captured. She was— She was the wife of the man I slew, Stilgar said. I grant you that he asked for it. Might just as well have fallen on his own knife. But this new attitude smells of— Agavis danced to his feet, anger plain on his face. She forgives you. How many times must I say it? She had the priests make a great show of asking divine guidance from— You've only raised another issue. It was Irulan, leaning forward past Rajia, blonde head set off against Rajia's darkness. She has convinced you, but she may have other plans. The priesthood has— But there are all of these stories, Irulan said, that you're more than just a military advisor, that you're her— Enough! Agavius was beside himself with rage. His hand hovered near his knife. Warring emotions moved just below the surface of his skin, twisting his features. Believe what you will, but I cannot go on with that woman. She fouls me, she dirties everything she touches. I am used, I am soiled, but I have not lifted my knife against my kin. Now, no more. Ghanima, observing this, thought that at least was truth coming out of him. Surprisingly, Stilgar broke into laughter. "'Ah, cousin!' he said. "'Forgive me, but there's truth in anger.' "'Then you agree?' "'I've not said that.' He raised a hand as Agaviz threatened another outburst. "'It's not for my sake, Buir, but there are these others,' he gestured around him. "'They are my responsibility.' Let us consider for a moment what reparations Alia offers. Reparations? There's no word of reparations. Pardon, but no— Then what does she offer as surety of her word? Sietch, Tabor, and you as Naib. Full autonomy as a neutral. She understands now how— I'll not go back to her entourage, or provide her with fighting men, Stilgar warned. Is that understood? Ganima could hear Stilgar beginning to weaken, and thought, No, still, no! No need for that, Agavis said. Alia wants only Ganima return to her, and the carrying out of the betrothal promise which she— So now it comes out, Stilgar said, his brows drawing down. Ganima's the price of my pardon. Does she think me— She thinks you sensible, Agavis argued, resuming his seat. Gleefully, Ganima thought, He won't do it. Save your breath. He won't do it. As she thought this, Ganima heard a soft rustling behind and to her left. She started to turn, felt powerful hands grab her. A heavy rag reeking of sleep drugs covered her face before she could cry out. As consciousness faded, she felt herself being carried toward a door in the hall's darkest reaches, and she thought, I should have guessed. I should have been prepared but the hands that held her were adult and strong. She could not squirm away from them. Ghanima's last sensory impressions were of cold air, a glimpse of stars, and a hooded face which looked down at her, then asked, she wasn't injured, was she? The answer was lost as the stars wheeled and streaked across her gaze, losing themselves in a blaze of light, which was the inner core of her selfdom. Muad'Dib gave us a particular kind of knowledge about prophetic insight, about the behavior which surrounds such insight and its influence upon events which are seen to be online, that is, events which are set to occur in a related system which the Prophet reveals and interprets. As has been noted elsewhere, such insight operates as a peculiar trap for the Prophet himself. He can become the victim of what he knows, which is a relatively common human failing. The danger is that those who predict real events may overlook the polarizing effect brought about by overindulgence in their own truth. They tend to forget that nothing in a polarized universe can exist without its opposite being present. The Prescient Vision by Harkaladar Blowing sand hung like fog on the horizon, obscuring the rising sun. The sand was cold in the dune shadows. Leto stood outside the ring of the palmery, looking into the desert. He smelled dust and the aroma of spiny plants, heard the morning sounds of people and animals. The Fremen maintained no canat in this place. They had only a bare minimum of hand-planting irrigated by the women who carried water in skin-bags. Their wind-trap was a fragile thing, easily destroyed by the storm-winds but easily rebuilt. Hardship The rigors of the spice trade and adventure were a way of life here. These Fremen still believed heaven was the sound of running water, but they cherished an ancient concept of freedom which Leto shared. Freedom is a lonely state, he thought. Leto adjusted the folds of the white robe which covered his living still-suit. He could feel how the sand-trout membrane had changed him, and, as always with this feeling, he was forced to overcome a deep sense of loss. He no longer was completely human. Odd things swam in his blood. Sand-trout cilia had penetrated every organ, adjusting, changing. The sand-trout itself was changing, adapting. But Leto, knowing this, felt himself torn by the old threads of his lost humanity. His life caught in primal anguish with its ancient continuity shattered. He knew the trap of indulging in such emotion, though. He knew it well. Let the future happen of itself, he thought. The only rule governing creativity is the act of creation itself. It was difficult to take his gaze away from the sands, the dunes, the great emptiness. Here at the edge of the sand lay a few rocks, but they led the imagination outward into the winds, the dust, the sparse and lonely plants and animals, dune merging into dune, desert into desert. Behind him came the sound of a flute, playing for the morning prayer, the chant for moisture which now was a subtly altered serenade to the new Shai Hulud. This knowledge in Leto's mind gave the music a sense of eternal loneliness. I could just walk away into that desert, he thought. Everything would change then. One direction would be as good as another. He had already learned to live a life free of possessions. He had refined the Fremen mystique to a terrible edge. Everything he took with him was necessary, and that was all he took. But he carried nothing except the robe on his back, the Atreides' hawk ring hidden in its folds, and the skin which was not his own. It would be easy to walk away from here. Movement high in the sky caught his attention. The splayed gap wingtips identified a vulture. The sight filled his chest with aching. Like the wild Fremen, vultures lived in this land because this was where they were born. They knew nothing better. The desert made them what they were. Another Fremen breed was coming up in the wake of Muad'Dib and Alia, though. They were the reason he could not let himself walk away into the desert as his father had done. Leto recalled Idaho's words from the early days. These Fremen, they're magnificently alive. I've never met a greedy Fremen. There were plenty of greedy Fremen now. A wave of sadness passed over later. He was committed to a course which could change all of that, but at a terrible price, and the management of that course became increasingly difficult as they neared the vortex. Kralizek, the typhoon struggle lay ahead, but Kralizek or worse would be the price of a misstep. Voices sounded behind Leto, then the clear piping sound of a child speaking. Here he is, Leto turned. The preacher had come out of the palmery, led by a child. Why do I still think of him as the preacher? Leto wondered. The answer lay there on the clean tablet of Leto's mind. Because this is no longer Muad'Dib, no longer Paul Atreides. The desert had made him what he was. The desert? and the jackals of Jakarutu with their overdoses of melange and their constant betrayals. The preacher was old before his time, old not despite the spice, but because of it. "'They said you wanted to see me now,' the preacher said, speaking as his child guide stopped. Leto looked at the child of the palmery, a person almost as tall as himself, with awe tempered by an avaricious curiosity.' The young eyes glinted darkly above the child-sized still-suit mask. Leto waved a hand. Leave us. For a moment there was rebellion in the child's shoulders. Then the awe and native Fremen respect for privacy took over. The child left them. You know Faradon is here on Arrakis? Leto asked. Gurney told me when he flew me down last night. And the preacher thought, how coldly measured his words are. He's like I was in the old days. I face a difficult choice, Leto said. I thought you'd already made all the choices. We know that trap, father. The preacher cleared his throat. The tensions told him how near they were to the shattering crisis. Now Leto would not be relying on pure vision, but on vision management. You need my help? The preacher asked. Yes, I'm returning to Arakeen, and I wish to go as your guide. To what end? Would you preach once more in Arakine? Perhaps. There are things I've not said to them. You will not come back to the desert, father. If I go with you? Yes. I'll do whatever you decide. Have you considered, with Faradun there, your mother will be with him? Undoubtedly. Once more, the preacher cleared his throat. It was a betrayal of nervousness which Muad'Dib would never have permitted. This flesh had been too long away from the old regimen of self-discipline, his mind too often betrayed into madness by the Jakurutu. And the preacher thought that perhaps it wouldn't be wise to return to Arikin. You don't have to go back there with me, Plato said. But my sister is there, and I must return. You could go with Gurney, and you'd go to Arakin alone? Yes, I must meet Faridun. I will go with you, the preacher sighed. And Leto sensed the touch of the old vision madness in the preacher's manner, wondered, has he been playing the prescience game? No, he'd never go that way again. He knew the trap of a partial commitment. The preacher's every word confirmed that he had handed over the visions to his son, knowing that everything in this universe had been anticipated. It was the old polarities which taunted the preacher now. He had fled from paradox into paradox. "'We'll be leaving in a few minutes, then,' Leto said. "'Will you tell Gurney?' "'Gurney's not going with us. I want Gurney to survive.' The preacher opened himself to the tensions then. They were in the air around him, in the ground under his feet, a motile thing which focused onto the non-child who was his son. The blunt scream of his old visions waited in the preacher's throat. This cursed holiness! The sandy juice of his fears could not be avoided. He knew what faced them in Arakin. They would play a game once more with terrifying and deadly forces which could never bring them peace. The child who refuses to travel in the father's harness This is the symbol of man's most unique capability. I do not have to be what my father was. I do not have to obey my father's rules, or even believe everything he believed. It is my strength as a human that I can make my own choices of what to believe and what not to believe, of what to be and what not to be. Leto Atreides II The Harkaladar Biography Pilgrim women were dancing to drum and flute in the temple plaza, no coverings on their heads, bangles at their necks, their dresses thin and revealing. Their long black hair was thrown straight out, then straggled across their faces as they whirled. Alia looked down at the scene from her temple eerie, both attracted and repelled. It was mid-morning, the hour when the aroma of spice coffee began to waft across the plaza from the vendors beneath the shaded arches. Soon she would have to go out and greet Faridun, present the formal gifts, and supervise his first meeting with Ganima. It was all working out according to plan. Ghani would kill him, and, in the shattering aftermath, only one person would be prepared to pick up the pieces. The puppets danced when the strings were pulled. Stilgar had killed Agaviz just as she'd hoped, and Agaviz had led the kidnappers to the Djedida without knowing it, a secret signal transmitter hidden in the new boots she'd given him. Now Stilgar and Irulan waited in the temple dungeons. Perhaps they would die. But there might be other uses for them. There was no harm in waiting. She noted that town Fremen were watching the pilgrim dancers below her, their eyes intense and unwavering. A basic sexual equality had come out of the desert to persist in Fremen town and city, but social differences between male and female already were making themselves felt. That, too, went according to plan. Divide and weaken. Alia could sense the subtle change in the way the two Fremen watched those off-planet women and their exotic dance. Let them watch. Let them fill their minds with Gaffla. The louvers of Alia's window had been opened and she could feel a sharp increase in the heat, which began about sunrise in this season, and would peak in mid-afternoon. The temperature on the stone floor of the plaza would be much higher. It would be uncomfortable for those dancers, but still they whirled and bent, swung their arms and their hair in the frenzy of their dedication. They had dedicated their dance to Alia, the womb of heaven. An aide had come to whisper this to Alia, sneering at the off-world women and their peculiar ways. The aide had explained that the women were from Ix, where remnants of the forbidden science and technology remained. Alia sniffed. Those women were as ignorant, as superstitious and backward as the desert Fremen. Just as that sneering aide had said, trying to curry favour by reporting the dedication of the dance, and neither the aide nor the Ixians even knew that Ix was merely a number in a forgotten language. Laughing lightly to herself, Alia thought, let them dance. The dancing wasted energy which might be put to more destructive uses, and the music was pleasant, a thin wailing played against flat timpani from gourd drums and clapped hands. Abruptly the music was drowned beneath a roaring of many voices from the plaza's far side. The dancers missed the step, recovered in a brief confusion, but they had lost their sensuous singleness and even their attention wandered to the far gate of the plaza, where a mob could be seen spreading onto the stones like water rushing through the opened valve of a canate. Alia stared at that oncoming wave. She heard words now, and one above all others. Preacher! Preacher! Then she saw him, striding with the first spread of the wave, one hand on the shoulder of his young guide. The pilgrim dancers gave up their whirling, retired to the terraced steps below Alia. They were joined by their audience, and Alia sensed awe in the watchers. Her own emotion was fear. How dare he! She half turned to summon guards, but second thoughts stopped her. The mob already filled the plaza. They could turn ugly if thwarted in their obvious desire to hear the blind visionary. Alia clenched her fists. The preacher! Why was Paul doing this? To half the population he was a desert madman, and therefore sacred. Others whispered in the bazaars and shops that it must be Muad'Dib. Why else did the Mardinate let him speak such angry heresy? Alia could see refugees among the mob, remnants from the abandoned sietches, their robes in tatters. That would be a dangerous place down there. A place where mistakes could be made, mistress, the voice came from behind Alia. she turned, saw Zia standing in the arched doorway to the outer chamber. Armed house guards were close behind her. Yes, Zia, my lady, Faridin is out here requesting audience here, in my chambers. Yes, my lady, is he alone? Two bodyguards and the lady Jessica. Alia put a hand to her throat, remembering her last encounter with her mother. Times had changed, though. New conditions ruled their relationship. How impetuous he is, Alia said. What reason does he give? He has heard about— Zia pointed to the window over the plaza. He says he was told you have the best vantage. Alia frowned. Do you believe this, Zia? No, my lady. I think he has heard the rumors. He wants to watch your reaction. My mother put him up to this. Quite possibly, my lady. Zia, my dear, I want you to carry out a specific set of very important orders for me. Come here. Zia approached to within a pace. My lady. Have Faridun, his guards, and my mother admitted. Then prepare to bring Ganima. She used to be accoutred as a Fremen bride in every detail. Complete. With knife, my lady. With knife. My lady, that's— Ganima poses no threat to me. My lady, there's reason to believe she fled with Stilgar, more to protect him than for any other— See ya! My lady, Ganima already has made her plea for Stilgar's life, and Stilgar remains alive. But she's the heir presumptive. Just carry out my orders. Have Ganima prepared. While you're seeing to that, send five attendants from the temple priesthood out into the plaza. They're to invite the preacher up here. Have them wait their opportunity and speak to him. Nothing more. They are to use no force. I want them to issue a polite invitation. Absolutely no force. And Zia? My lady. How sullen she sounded. The Preacher and Ghanima are to be brought before me simultaneously. They are to enter together upon my signal. Do you understand? I know the plan, my lady. But just do it. Together. And Alia nodded dismissal to the Amazon aide. As Zia turned and left, Alia said, On your way out, send in Faridun's party, but see that they're preceded by ten of your most trustworthy people. Zia glanced back but continued leaving the room. It will be done as you command, my lady. Alia turned away to peer out the window. In just a few minutes, the plan would bear its bloody fruit, and Paul would be here when his daughter delivered the coup de grace to his holy pretensions. Alia heard Zia's guard detachment entering. It would be over soon. All over. She looked down with a swelling sense of triumph as the preacher took his stance on the first step. His youthful guide squatted beside him. Alia saw the yellow robes of temple priests waiting on the left, held back by the press of the crowd. They were experienced with crowds, however. They'd find a way to approach their target. The preacher's voice boomed out over the plaza, and the mob waited upon his words with rapt attention. Let them listen. Soon his words would be made to mean other things than he intended, and there'd be no preacher around to protest. She heard Faradun's party enter, Jessica's voice. Alia? Without turning, Alia said, Welcome, Prince Faradun. Mother, come and enjoy the show. She glanced back then, saw the big Sadukar Tiekanik, scowling at her guards who were blocking the way. But this isn't hospitable, Alia said. Let them approach. Two of her guards, obviously acting on Zia's orders, came up to her and stood between her and the others. The other guards moved aside. Alia backed to the right side of the window, motioned to it. This is truly the best vantage point. Jessica, wearing her traditional black abba robe, glared at Alia, escorted Faridun to the window, but stood between him and Alia's guards. "'This is very kind of you, Lady Alia, Faridun said. "'I've heard so much about this preacher.' "'And there he is in the flesh,' Alia said. She saw that Faridun wore the dress grey of a Sardukah commander without decorations. He moved with a lean grace which Alia admired. Perhaps there would be more than idle amusement in this Corino prince? The preacher's voice boomed into the room over the amplifier pickups beside the window. Alia felt the tremors of it in her bones, began to listen to his words with growing fascination. "'I found myself in the desert of Zan,' the preacher shouted, "'in that waste of howling wilderness. And God commanded me to make that place clean, for we were provoked in the desert.' and grieved in the desert, and we were tempted in that wilderness to forsake our ways. Desert of Zahn, Alia thought. That was the name given to the place of the first trial of the Zen Sunni wanderers from whom the Fremen sprang. But his words! Was he taking credit for the destruction wrought against the Sietch strongholds of the loyal tribes? Wild beasts lie upon your lands! the preacher said, his voice booming across the plaza. Doleful creatures, fill your houses! You who fled your homes no longer multiply your days upon the sand. Yea, you who have forsaken our ways, you will die in a fouled nest if you continue on this path. But if you heed my warning, the Lord shall lead you through a land of pits into the mountains of God. Yea, Shai-Hulud shall lead you. Soft moans arose from the crowd. The preacher paused, swinging his eyeless sockets from side to side at the sound. Then he raised his arms, spreading them wide, called out, O God, my flesh longeth for thy way in a dry and thirsty land. An old woman in front of the preacher, an obvious refugee by the patched and worn look of her garments, held up her hands to him, pleaded, Help us, Muad'Dib! Help us! In a sudden, fearful constriction of her breast, Alia asked herself if that old woman really knew the truth. Alia glanced at her mother, but Jessica remained unmoving, dividing her attention between Alia's guards, Faridun, and the view from the window. Faridun stood rooted in fascinated attention. Alia glanced out the window, trying to see her temple priests. They were not in view, and she suspected they had worked their way around below her, near the temple doors, seeking a direct route down the steps. The preacher pointed his right hand over the old woman's head, shouted, You are the only help remaining. You were rebellious. You brought the dry wind which does not cleanse, nor does it cool. You bear the burden of our desert, and the whirlwind cometh from that place, from that terrible land. I have been in that wilderness. Water runs upon the sand from shattered canats. Streams cross the ground. Water has fallen from the sky in the belt of dune. O my friends, God has commanded me. Make straight in the desert a highway for our Lord, for I am the voice that cometh to thee from the wilderness. He pointed to the steps beneath his feet, a stiff and quivering finger. This is no lost Djedida, which is no more inhabited for ever. Here have we eaten the bread of heaven, and here the noise of strangers drives us from our homes. They breed for us a desolation, a land wherein no man dwelleth nor any man pass thereby. The crowd stirred uncomfortably, refugees and town fremen peering about, looking at the pilgrims of the Hajj who stood among them. He could start a bloody riot, Aliyah thought. Well, let him. My priests can grab him in the confusion. She saw the five priests then, a tight knot of yellow robes working down the steps behind the preacher. The waters which we spread upon the desert have become blood, the preacher said, waving his arms wide. Blood upon our land! Behold our desert which could rejoice and blossom! It has lured the stranger and seduced him in our midst. They come for violence. Their faces are closed up as for the last wind of Kralizek. They gather the captivity of the sand. They suck up the abundance of the sand, the treasure hidden in the depths. Behold them as they go forth to their evil work. It is written, And I stood upon the sand, and I saw a beast rise up out of that sand, and upon the head of that beast was the name of God. Angry mutterings arose from the crowd. Fists were raised, shaken. What is he doing? Faridun whispered. I wish I knew, Alia said. She put a hand to her breast, feeling the fearful excitement of this moment. The crowd would turn upon the pilgrims if he kept this up. But the preacher half turned, aimed his dead sockets toward the temple, and raised a hand to point at the high windows of Alia's Eyrie. One blasphemy remains! He screamed, "'Blasphemy! And the name of that blasphemy is Alia!' Shocked silence gripped the plaza. Alia stood in unmoving consternation. She knew the mob could not see her, but she felt overcome by a sense of exposure, of vulnerability. The echoes of calming words within her skull competed with the pounding of her heart. She could only stare down at that incredible tableau. The preacher remained with a hand pointing at her windows. His words had been too much for the priests, though. They broke the silence with angry shouts, stormed down the steps, thrusting people aside. As they moved, the crowd reacted, breaking like a wave upon the steps, sweeping over the first lines of onlookers carrying the preacher before them. He stumbled blindly, separated from his young guide. Then a yellow-clad arm arose from the press of people. A criss-knife was brandished in its hand. She saw the knife strike downward, bury itself in the preacher's chest. The thunderous clang of the temple's giant doors being closed broke Alia from her shock. Guards obviously had closed the doors against the mob, but people already were drawing back, making an open space around a crumpled figure on the steps. An eerie quiet fell over the plaza. Aliyah saw many bodies, but only this one lay by itself. Then a voice screeched from the mob. Muad'Dib! They've killed Muad'Dib! Gods below, Aliyah quavered. Gods below. A little late for that, don't you think? Jessica asked. Alia whirled, noting the sudden, startled reaction of Faridun as he saw the rage on her face. That was Paul they killed, Alia screamed. That was your son. When they confirm it, do you know what'll happen? Jessica stood rooted for a long moment, thinking that she had just been told something already known to her. Faridun's hand upon her arm shattered the moment. My lady, he said and there was such compassion in his voice that Jessica thought she might die of it right there. She looked from the cold, glaring anger on Alia's face to the sympathetic misery on Faradon's features and thought, perhaps I did my job too well. There could be no doubting Alia's words. Jessica remembered every intonation of the preacher's voice, hearing her own tricks in it. The long years of instruction she'd spent there upon a young man meant to be emperor, but who now lay a shattered mound of bloody rags upon the temple steps. Gafla blinded me, Jessica thought. Alia gestured to one of her aides, called, Bring Ghanima now. Jessica forced herself into recognizing these words. Ghanima? Why Ghanima now? The aide had turned toward the outer door, motioning it for it to be unbarred. But before a word could be uttered, the door bulged. Hinges popped. The bar snapped and the door, a thick, plasteel construction meant to withstand terrible energies, toppled into the room. Guards leaped to avoid it, drawing their weapons. Jessica and Faradon's bodyguards closed in around the Corino Prince. But the opening revealed only two children. Janima on the left, clad in her black betrothal robe, and Leto on the right, the grey slickness of a still-suit beneath a desert-stained white robe. Alia stared from the fallen door to the children, found she was trembling uncontrollably. "'The family here to greet us,' Leto said. "'Grandmother,' he nodded to Jessica, shifted his attention to the Corino prince. "'And this must be Prince Faridun,' Welcome to Arrakis, prince. Ganema's eyes appeared empty. She held her right hand on a ceremonial criss-knife at her waist, and she appeared to be trying to escape from Leto's grip on her arm. Leto shook her arm, and her whole body shook with it. Behold me, family, Leto said. I am Ari, the Lion of the Atreides. And here, again... He shook Ganima's arm with that powerful ease which set her whole body jerking. Here is Aria, the Atreides lioness. We come to set you onto Secha-Nabiu, the golden path. Ganima, absorbing the trigger words Secha-Nabiu, felt the locked-away consciousness flow into her head. It flowed with a linear nicety the inner awareness of her mother hovering there behind it, a guardian at a gate. And Ganema knew in that instant that she had conquered the clamorous past. She possessed a gate through which she could peer when she needed that past. The months of self-hypnotic suppression had built for her a safe place from which to manage her own flesh. She started to turn toward Leto with a need to explain this when she became aware of where she stood. And with whom? Leto released her arm. Did our plan work? Ghanima whispered. Well enough, Leto said. Recovering from her shock, Alia shouted at a clump of guards on her left. Seize them! But Leto bent, took the foreign door with one hand, skidded it across the room into the guards. Two were pinned against the wall. The others fell back in terror. That door weighed half a metric tonne and this child had thrown it. Alia, growing aware that the corridor beyond the doorway contained fallen guards, realized that Leto must have dealt with them, that this child had shattered her impregnable door. Jessica, too, had seen the bodies, seen the awesome power in Leto, and had made similar assumptions. But Ganima's words touched a core of Bene Gesserit discipline, which forced Jessica to maintain her composure. This grandchild spoke of a plan. What plan? Jessica asked. The Golden Path. Our Imperial plan for our Imperium, Leto said. He nodded to Faradon. Don't think harshly of me, cousin. I act for you as well. Alia hoped to have Ganima slay you. I'd rather you lived out your life in some degree of happiness. Alia screamed at her guards cowering in the passage. I command you to seize them! But the guards refused to enter the room. Wait for me here, sister. Leto said, I have a disagreeable task to perform. He moved across the room toward Aliyah. She backed away from him into a corner, crouched and drew her knife. The green jewels of its handle flashed in the light from the window. Leto merely continued his advance, hands empty but spread and ready. Aliyah lunged with the knife. Leto leaped almost to the ceiling, struck with his left foot. It caught Alia's head a glancing blow and sent her sprawling with a bloody mark on her forehead. She lost her grip on the knife and it skidded across the floor. Alia scrambled after the knife but found Leto standing in front of her. Alia hesitated, called up everything she knew of Bene Gesserit training. She came off the floor, body loose and poised. Once more Leto advanced upon her. Alia fainted to the left, but her right shoulder came up and her right foot shot out in a toe-pointing kick which could disembowel a man if it struck precisely. Leto caught the blow on his arm, grabbed the foot, and picked her up by it, swinging her around his head. The speed with which he swung her sent a flapping, hissing sound through the room as her robe beat against her body. The others ducked away. Alia screamed and screamed, but still she continued to swing around and around and around. Presently she fell silent. Slowly Leto reduced the speed of her whirling, dropped her gently to the floor. She lay in a panting bundle. Leto bent over her. I could have thrown you through a wall, he said. Perhaps that would have been best. But we're now at the center of the struggle. You deserve your chance. Alia's eyes darted wildly from side to side. I have conquered those inner lives, Leto said. Look at Gani. She too can... Ganima interrupted. Alia, I can show you... No! The word was wrenched from Alia. Her chest heaved and voices began to pour from her mouth. They were disconnected, cursing, pleading. You see? Why didn't you listen? And then, Why are you doing this? What's happening? and another voice. Stop them! Make them stop! Jessica covered her eyes, felt Faridun's hand steady her. Still, Alia raved. I'll kill you! Hideous curses erupted from her. I'll drink your blood! The sounds of many languages began to pour from her, all jumbled and confused. The huddled guards in the outer passage made the sign of the worm, then held clenched fists beside their ears. She was possessed. Leto stood shaking his head. He stepped to the window and with three swift blows shattered the supposedly unbreakable crystal-reinforced glass from its frame. A sly look came over Alia's face. Jessica heard something like her own voice come from that twisting mouth, a parody of Bene Gesserit control. All of you, stay where you are. Jessica, lowering her hands, found them damp with tears. Alia rolled to her knees, lurched to her feet. Don't you know who I am? she demanded. It was her old voice, the sweet and lilting voice of the youthful Alia who was no more. Why are you all looking at me that way? She turned pleading eyes to Jessica. Mother, make them stop it. Jessica could only shake her head from side to side, consumed by ultimate horror. All of the old Bene Gesserit warnings were true. She looked at Leto and Gani, standing side by side near Alia. What did those warnings mean for these poor twins? Grandmother, Leto said, and there was pleading in his voice. Must we have a trial of possession? Who are you to speak of trial? Alia asked, and her voice was that of a querulous man, an autocratic and sensual man far gone in self-indulgence. Both Leto and Ganima recognized the voice, the old Baron Harkonnen. Ganima heard the same voice begin to echo in her own head, but the inner gate closed and she sensed her mother standing there. Jessica remained silent. Then the decision is mine, Leto said, and the choice is yours, Alia. Trial of Possession? Or... He nodded toward the open window. Who are you to give me a choice? Alia demanded, and it was still the voice of the old baron. Demon, Ganima screamed. Let her make her own choice. Mother, Alia pleaded in her little girl tones. Mother, what are they doing? What do you want me to do? Help me. Help yourself. Leto ordered, and for just an instant he saw the shattered presence of his aunt in her eyes, a glaring hopelessness which peered out at him and was gone. But her body moved, a stick-like thrusting walk. She wavered, stumbled, veered from her path, but returned to it nearer and nearer the open window. Now the voice of the old baron raged from her lips. "Stop!" "'Stop it, I say! I command you! Stop it! Feel this!' Aliyah clutched her head, stumbled closer to the window. She had the sill against her thighs then, but the voice still raved. "'Don't do this! Stop it and I'll help you! I have a plan! Listen to me! Stop it, I say! Wait!' But Aliya pulled her hands away from her head, clutched the broken casement. In one jerking motion she pulled herself over the sill and was gone. Not even a screech came from her as she fell. In the room they heard the crowd shout, the sodden thump as Alia struck the steps far below. Leto looked at Jessica. We told you to pity her. Jessica turned and buried her face in Faradun's tunic. The assumption that a whole system can be made to work better through an assault on its conscious elements betrays a dangerous ignorance. This has often been the ignorant approach of those who call themselves scientists and technologists. The Butlerian Jihad by Hark Al Adha. He runs at night, cousin, Ghanima said. He runs. Have you seen him run? No, Faradun said. He waited with Ganema outside the small audience hall of the keep, where Leto had called them to attend. Tyakonik stood at one side, uncomfortable with the Lady Jessica, who appeared withdrawn as though her mind lived in another place. It was hardly an hour past the morning meal, but already many things had been set moving, a summons to the guild, messages to Chom and the Lansraat. Faridun found it difficult to understand these Atreides. The Lady Jessica had warned him, but still the reality of them puzzled him. They still talked of the betrothal, although most political reasons for it seemed to have dissolved. Later would assume the throne. There appeared little doubt of that. His odd living skin would have to be removed, of course, but in time. He runs to tire himself, Ganema said. He's Kralizek embodied. No wind ever ran as he runs. He's a blur atop the dunes. I've seen him. He runs and runs, and when he has exhausted himself at last, he returns and rests his head in my lap. Ask our mother within to find a way for me to die, he pleads. Faradun stared at her. In the week since the riot in the plaza, the keep had moved to strange rhythms, mysterious comings and goings, stories of bitter fighting beyond the shield wall came to him through Tieknik, whose military advice had been asked. I don't understand you. Faridun said. Find a way for him to die. He asked me to prepare you, Ganema said. Not for the first time she was struck by the curious innocence of this Corino prince. Was that Jessica's doing? Or something born in him? For what? He's no longer human, Ganema said. Yesterday, you asked when he was going to remove the living skin. Never. It's part of him now, and he's part of it. Leto estimates he has perhaps four thousand years before metamorphosis destroys him. Faradun tried to swallow in a dry throat. You see why he runs? Ganema asked. But if he'll live so long and be so— Because the memory of being human is so rich in him. Think of all those lives, cousin. No, you can't imagine what that is because you've no experience of it. But I know. I can imagine his pain. He gives more than anyone ever gave before. Our father walked into the desert trying to escape it. Aliyah became abomination in fear of it. Our grandmother has only the blurred infancy of this condition, yet must use every Bene Gesserit while to live with it, which is what Reverend Mother training amounts to anyway. But Leto, he's all alone, never to be duplicated. Faradun felt stunned by her words. Emperor for four thousand years? Jessica knows, Gunima said, looking across at her grandmother. He told her last night. He called himself the first truly long-range planner in human history. What does he plan? The Golden Path. He'll explain it to you later. And he has a role for me in this plan? As my mate, Gunima said. He's taking over the Sisterhood's breeding program. I'm sure my grandmother told you about the Bene Gesserit dream for a male reverend with extraordinary powers. He's— You mean we're just to be— Not just. She took his arm, squeezed it with a warm familiarity. He'll have many very responsible tasks for both of us, when we're not producing children, that is. Well, you're a little young yet, Faridon said, disengaging his arm. Don't ever make that mistake again, she said. There was ice in her tone. Jessica came up to them with Tjekanik. Tjek tells me the fighting has spread off-planet, Jessica said. The central temple on Bjarik is under siege. Faradun thought her oddly calm in this statement. He'd reviewed the reports with Tierkanik during the night. A wildfire of rebellion was spreading through the Empire. It would be put down, of course, but later would have a sorry Empire to restore. He is still gone now, Ganima said. They've been waiting for him. And once more she took Faradan's arm. The old Fremen Naib had entered by the far door, escorted by two former Death Commando companions from the desert days. All were dressed in formal black robes with white piping and yellow headbands for mourning. They approached with steady strides, but Stilgar kept his attention on Jessica. He stopped in front of her, nodded warily. You still worry about the death of Duncan Idaho, Jessica said. She didn't like this caution in her old friend. Reverend Mother, he said. So it's going to be that way, Jessica thought. Or formal and according to the Fremen code, with blood difficult to expunge. She said, By our view, you but played a part which Duncan assigned you. Not the first time a man has given his life for the Atreides. Why do they do it still? You've been ready for it more than once. Why? Is it that you know how much the Atreides give in return? I'm happy you seek no excuse for revenge, he said. But there are matters I must discuss with your grandson. These matters may separate us from you forever. You mean Tabur will not pay him homage? Ganima asked. I mean I reserve my judgment. He looked coldly at Ganima. I don't like what my Fremen have become, he growled. We will go back to the old ways, without you if necessary. For a time, perhaps, Ganima said. But the desert is dying still. What'll you do when there are no more worms? No more desert? I don't believe it. Within one hundred years, Ganema said, there'll be fewer than fifty worms, and those will be sick ones kept in a carefully managed reservation. Their spice will be for the Spacing Guild only, and the price— She shook her head. I've seen Leto's figures. He's been all over the planet. He knows. Is this another trick, to keep the Fremen as your vassals? When were you ever my vassal? Ganema asked. Stilgar scowled. No matter what he said or did, these twins always made it his fault. Last night he told me about this golden path, Stilgar blurted. I don't like it. That's odd, Ghanima said, glancing at her grandmother. Most of the Empire will welcome it destruction of us all, Stilgar muttered. But everyone longs for the Golden Age, gunima said. Isn't that so, Grandmother? Everyone, Jessica agreed. They long for the Feronic Empire which later will give them, gunima said. They long for a rich peace with abundant harvests, plentiful trade, a leveling of all except the Golden Ruler. It'll be the death of the Fremen, Stilgar protested. How can you say that? Will we not need soldiers and brave men to remove the occasional dissatisfaction? Why, still, you and Tiek's brave companions will be hard-pressed to do the job. Stilgar looked at the Sarduka officer, and a strange light of understanding passed between them. And later we'll control the spice, Jessica reminded them. He'll control it absolutely, Ganima said. Faridin, listening with a new awareness which Jessica had taught him, heard a set piece, a prepared performance between Ganima and her grandmother. Peace will endure and endure and endure, Ganima said. Memory of war will all but vanish. Later will lead humankind through that garden for at least four thousand years. Tierkanik glanced questioningly at Faridin, cleared his throat. Yes, Tiek. Faridin said. I'd speak privately with you, my prince. Faradun smiled, knowing the question in Tchekanik's military mind, knowing that at least two others present also recognized this question. I'll not sell the Sardaga, Faradun said. No need, Ganima said. Do you listen to this child? Tchekanik demanded. He was outraged. The old Naib there understood the problems being raised by all this plotting, but nobody else knew a damned thing about the situation. Ghanima smiled grimly, said, Tell him, Faradun. Faradun sighed. It was easy to forget the strangeness of this child who was not a child. He could imagine a lifetime married to her, the hidden reservations on every intimacy. It was not a totally pleasant prospect but he was beginning to recognize its inevitability, absolute control of dwindling spice supplies. Nothing would move in the universe without the spice. Later, Tiek, Faridun said. But later, I said. For the first time he used voice on tiek saw the man blink with surprise and remain silent. A tight smile touched Jessica's mouth. He talks of peace and death in the same breath, Stilgar muttered. Golden Age. Ganima said, He'll lead humans through the cult of death into the free air of exuberant life. He speaks of death because that's necessary still. It's a tension by which the living know they're alive. When his empire falls, oh yes, it'll fall. You think this is Kralizek now, but Kralizek is yet to come. And when it comes, humans will have renewed their memory of what it's like to be alive. The memory will persist as long as there's a single human living. We'll go through the crucible once more still, and we'll come out of it. We always arise from our own ashes. Always. Faradun, hearing her words, understood now what she'd meant in telling him about Leto running. He'll not be human. Stilgar was not yet convinced. No more worms, he growled. Oh, the worms will come back, Ganema assured him. Or we'll be dead within two hundred years, but they'll come back. Oh, Stilgar broke off. Faradun felt his mind awash in revelation. He knew what Ganema would say before she spoke. The guild will barely make it through the lean years and only then because of its stockpiles and ours, Ghanima said. But there'll be abundance after Kralizek. The worms will return after my brother goes into the sand. As with so many other religions, Muad'Dib's golden elixir of life degenerated into external wizardry. Its mystical signs became mere symbols for deeper psychological processes, and those processes, of course, ran wild. What they needed was a living god, and they didn't have one, a situation which Muad'Dib's son has corrected. Saying attributed to Lu Tongpin, Lu, the guest of the cavern. Leto sat on the lion throne to accept the homage of the tribes. Ganima stood beside him one step down. The ceremony in the great hall went on for hours. Tribe after Fremen tribe passed before him through their delegates and their naïves. Each group bore gifts fitting for a god of terrifying powers, a god of vengeance who promised them peace. He'd cowed them into submission the previous week, performing for the assembled Arifa of all the tribes. The judges had seen him walk through a pit of fire, emerging unscathed to demonstrate that his skin bore no marks by asking them to study him closely. He'd ordered them to strike him with knives, and the impenetrable skin had sealed his face while they struck at him to no avail. Acids ran off him with only the lightest mist of smoke. He'd eaten their poisons and laughed at them. At the end he'd summoned a worm and stood facing them at its mouth, He'd moved from that to the landing field at Arikin, where he'd brazenly toppled a gilt frigate by lifting one of its landing fins. The Arifa had reported all of this with fearful awe, and now the tribal delegates had come to seal their submission. The vaulted space of the great hall with its acoustical dampening systems tended to absorb sharp noises, but a constant rustling of moving feet insinuated itself upon the senses, riding on dust and the flint odours brought in from the open. Jessica, who'd refused to attend, watched from a high spy-hole behind the throne. Her attention was caught by Faradun and the realisation that both she and Faradun had been outmanoeuvred. Of course, Leto and Ganima had anticipated the sisterhood. The twins could consult within themselves a host of Bene Gesserit's greater than all now living in the Empire. She was particularly bitter at the way the sisterhood's mythology had trapped Alia. Fear built on fear. The habits of generations had imprinted the fate of abomination upon her. Alia had known no hope. Of course, she'd succumbed. Her fate made the accomplishment of Leto and Ganema even more difficult to face. Not one way out of the trap, but two. Ganema's victory over the inner lives and her insistence that Alia deserved only pity were the bitterest things of all. Hypnotic suppression under stress linked to the wooing of a benign ancestor had saved Ganima. They might have saved Alia, but without hope, nothing had been attempted until it was too late. Alia's water had been poured upon the sand. Jessica sighed, shifted her attention to Leto on the throne. A giant canopic jar containing the water of Muad'Dib occupied a place of honor at his right elbow. He'd boasted to Jessica that his father within laughed at this gesture even while admiring it. That jar in the boasting had firmed her resolve not to participate in this ritual. As long as she lived, she knew she could never accept Paul speaking through Leto's mouth. She rejoiced that House Atreides had survived, but the things that might have been were beyond bearing. Faridin sat cross-legged beside the jar of Muad'Dib's water. It was the position of the royal scribe, an honor newly conferred and newly accepted. Faridin felt that he was adjusting nicely to these new realities, although Tyakhanik still raged and promised dire consequences. Tyakhanik and Stilgar had formed a partnership of distrust, which seemed to amuse later. In the hours of the homage ceremony, Faridin had gone from awe to boredom to awe. They were an endless stream of humanity, these peerless fighting men— Their loyalty renewed to the Atreides on the throne could not be questioned. They stood in submissive terror before him, completely daunted by what the Arifa had reported. At last it drew to a close. The final Naib stood before Leto, Stilgar in the rear-guard position of honour. Instead of panniers heavy with spice, fire-jewels, or any of the other costly gifts which lay in mounds around the throne, Stilgar bore a headband of braided spice-fibre. The Atreides hawk had been worked in gold and green into its design. Ganema recognized it and shot a sidewise glance at Leto. Stilgar placed the headband on the second step below the throne, bowed low. I give you the headband worn by your sister when I took her into the desert to protect her, he said. Leto suppressed a smile. I know you've fallen on hard times, Stilgar, Leto said. Is there something here you would have in return? He gestured at the piles of costly gifts. No, my lord. I accept your gift, then, Leto said. He rocked forward, brought up the hem of Ganima's robe, ripped a thin strip from it. In return, I give you this bit of Ganima's robe, the robe she wore when she was stolen from your desert camp, forcing me to save her. Stilgar accepted the cloth in a trembling hand. Do you mock me, my lord? Mock you? By my name, Stilgar, never would I mock you. I have given you a gift without price. I command you to carry it always next to your heart as a reminder that all humans are prone to error and all leaders are human. A thin chuckle escaped Stilgar. What a Naib you would have made. What a Naib I am. Naib of Naibs. Never forget that as you say, my lord. Stilgar swallowed, remembering the report of his Arifa. And he thought, Once I thought of slaying him. Now it's too late. His glance fell on the jar, a graceful opaque gold capped with green. That is water of my tribe. And mine, Plato said. I command you to read the inscription upon its side. Read it aloud that all may hear it. Stilgar cast a questioning glance at Ganema, but she returned it with a lift of her chin, a cold response which sent a chill through him. Were these Atreides imps bent on holding him to answer for his impetuosity and his mistakes? Read it, Plato said, pointing. Slowly Stilgar mounted the steps, bent to look at the jar. Presently he read aloud. This water is the ultimate essence a source of outward-streaming creativity. Though motionless, this water is the means of all movement. What does it mean, my lord? Stilgar whispered. He felt awed by the words touched within himself in a place he could not understand. The body of Muad'Dib is a dry shell like that abandoned by an insect, Melato said. He mastered the inner world while holding the outer in contempt and this led to catastrophe. He mastered the outer world while excluding the inner world, and this delivered his descendants to the demons. The golden elixir will vanish from Dune, yet Muad'Dib's seed goes on, and his water moves our universe. Stilgar bowed his head. Mystical things always left him in turmoil. The beginning and the end are one, Leto said. You live in air, but do not see it. A phase has closed. Out of that closing grows the beginning of its opposite. Thus, we will have Kralizek. Everything returns later in changed form. You have felt thoughts in your head. Your descendants will feel thoughts in their bellies. Return to sietch Stilga. Gurney Halleck will join you there as my adviser in your council." Don't you trust me, my lord? Stilgar's voice was low. Completely, else I'd not send Gurney to you. He'll begin recruiting the new force we'll need soon. I accept your pledge of fealty, Stilgar. You are dismissed. Stilgar bowed low, backed off the steps, turned, and left the hall. The other naibs fell into step behind him according to the Fremen principle that the last shall be first but some of their queries could be heard on the throne as they departed. What were you talking about up there still? What does that mean, those words on Muad'Dib's water? Leto spoke to Faridun. Did you get all of that scribe? Yes, my lord. My grandmother tells me she trained you well in the mnemonic processes of the Bene Gesserit. That's good. I don't want you scribbling beside me. As you command, my lord. Come and stand before me, Leto said. Faridun obeyed, more than ever thankful for Jessica's training. When you accepted the fact that Leto no longer was human, no longer could think as humans thought, the course of his golden path became ever more frightening. Leto looked up at Faridun. The guards stood well back out of earshot. Only the counsellors of the Inner Presence remained on the floor of the Great Hall, and they stood in subservient groups well beyond the first step. Ghanima had moved closer to rest an arm on the back of the throne. You've not yet agreed to give me your saduka, Leto said, but you will. I owe you much, but not that, Faridin said. You think they'd not mate well with my Fremen? As well as those new friends, Stilgar and Tjekanik? Yet you refuse. I await your offer. Then I must make the offer, knowing you will never repeat it. I pray my grandmother has done her part well, that you are prepared to understand. What must I understand? There's always a prevailing mystique in any civilization, Later said. It builds itself as a barrier against change, and that always leaves future generations unprepared for the universe's treachery. All mystiques are the same in building these barriers the religious mystique, the hero-leader mystique, the messiah mystique, the mystique of science, technology, and the mystique of nature itself. We live in an imperium which such a mystique has shaped, and now that imperium is falling apart, because most people don't distinguish between mystique and their universe. You see, the mystique is like demon possession. It tends to take over the consciousness, becoming all things to the observer. I recognize your grandmother's wisdom in these words, Faradon said. Well and good, cousin. She asked me if I were abomination. I answered in the negative. That was my first treachery. You see, Ganima escaped this, but I did not. I was forced to balance the inner lives under the pressure of excessive melange. I had to seek the active cooperation of those aroused lives within me. Doing this, I avoided the most malignant and chose a dominant helper thrust upon me by the inner awareness which was my father. I am not, in truth, my father or this helper. Then again, I am not the second Leto. Explain. You have an admirable directness, Leto said. I am a community dominated by one who was ancient and surpassingly powerful. He fathered a dynasty which endured for three thousand of our years. His name was Harum, and until his line trailed out in the congenital weaknesses and superstitions of a descendant, his subjects lived in rhythmic sublimity. They moved unconsciously with the changes of the seasons. They bred individuals who tended to be short-lived, superstitious, and easily led by a god-king. Taken as a whole, they were a powerful people. Their survival as a species became habit. "'I don't like the sound of that,' Faradon said. "'Nor do I, really,' Leto said. "'But it's the universe I'll create. "'Why? "'It's a lesson I learned on Dune. "'We kept the presence of death a dominant specter among the living here. "'By that presence the dead changed the living.' The people of such a society sink down into their bellies, but when the time comes for the opposite, when they arise, they are great and beautiful. That doesn't answer my question, Faridun protested. You don't trust me, cousin. Nor does your own grandmother. And with good reason, Leto said, but she acquiesces because she must. Bene Gesserits are pragmatists in the end. I share their view of our universe, you know. You wear the marks of that universe. You retain the habits of rule cataloguing all around you in terms of their possible threat or value. I agreed to be your scribe. It amused you and flattered your real talent, which is that of historian. You've a definite genius for reading the present in terms of the past. You've anticipated me on several occasions. I don't like your veiled insinuations, Faridon said. Good. You come from infinite ambition to your present lowered estate. Didn't my grandmother warn you about infinity? It attracts us like a floodlight in the night, blinding us to the excesses it can inflict upon the finite. Bene Gesserit aphorisms, Farradon protested. But much more precise, Plato said. The Bene Gesserit believed they could predict the course of evolution, but they overlooked their own changes in the course of that evolution. They assumed they would stand still while their breeding plan evolved. I have no such reflexive blindness. Look carefully at me, Faridun, for I am no longer human. So your sister assures me, Faridun hesitated. Then, abomination? By the sisterhood's definition, perhaps. Harum is cruel and autocratic. I partake of his cruelty. Mark me well. I have the cruelty of the husbandman, and this human universe is my farm. Fremen once kept tame eagles as pets, but I'll keep a tame Faradun. Faradun's face darkened. Beware my claws, cousin. I well know my Sardaka would fall in time before your Fremen, but we'd wound you sorely and there are jackals waiting to pick off the weak. I will use you well, that I promise, Leto said. He leaned forward. Did I say I'm no longer human? Believe me, cousin, no children will spring from my loins, for I no longer have loins, and this forces my second treachery. Faradun waited in silence, seeing at last the direction of Leto's argument. I shall go against every Fremen precept, Leto said. They will accept, because they can do nothing else. I kept you here under the lure of a betrothal, but there will be no betrothal of you and Ghanima. My sister will marry me. But you marry, I say. Ghanima must continue the Atreides line. There's also the matter of the Bene Gesserit breeding program, which is now my breeding program. I refuse. Faradon said. You refused a father an Atreides dynasty? What dynasty? You'll occupy the throne for thousands of years and mold your descendants in my image. It will be the most intensive, the most inclusive training program in all of history. We'll be an ecosystem in miniature. You see... Whatever system animals choose to survive by must be based on the pattern of interlocking communities, interdependence, working together in the common design which is the system, and this system will produce the most knowledgeable rulers ever seen. You put fancy words on a most distasteful... Who will survive Kralizek? Plato asked. I promise you, Kralizek will come. You're a madman. You will shatter the Empire. Of course I will and I'm not a man. But I'll create a new consciousness in all men. I tell you that below the Desert of Dune there's a secret place with the greatest treasure of all time. I do not lie. When the last worm dies, and the last melange is harvested upon our sands, these deep treasures will spring up throughout our universe. As the power of the spice monopoly fades, and the hidden stockpiles make their mark, New powers will appear throughout our realm. It is time humans learned once more to live in their instincts. Ganema took her arm from the back of the throne, crossed to Faradon's side, took his hand. As my mother was not wife, you will not be husband, Leto said. But perhaps there will be love, and that will be enough. Each day, each moment brings its change, Ganema said. One learns by recognizing the moments. Faridun felt the warmth of Ganima's tiny hand as an insistent presence. He recognized the ebb and flow of Leto's arguments. But not once had voice been used. It was an appeal to the guts, not to the mind. Is this what you offer for my Saduka? he asked. Much, much more, cousin. I offer your descendants the Imperium. I offer you peace. What will be the outcome of your peace? It's opposite, Plato said, his voice calmly mocking. Faradun shook his head. I find the price for my Saduka very high. Must I remain scribe, the secret father of your royal line? You must. Will you try to force me into your habit of peace? I will. I'll resist you every day of my life. But that's the function I expect of you, cousin. It's why I chose you. I'll make it official. I will give you a new name. From this moment, you'll be called Breaking of the Habit, which in our tongue is Hak Alada. Come, cousin, don't be obtuse. My mother taught you well. Give me your Sadaka. Give them, Kanema echoed. He'll have them one way or another. Faridun heard fear for himself in her voice. Love, then? Leto asked not for reason, but for an intuitive leap. Take them, Faridun said. Indeed, Leto said. He lifted himself from the throne, a curiously fluid motion as though he kept his terrible powers under most delicate control. Leto stepped down then to Ganima's level, moved her gently until she faced away from him, turned and placed his back against hers. Note this, Cousin Hak Aladar. This is the way it will always be with us. We'll stand thus when we are married, back to back, each looking outward from the other to protect the one thing which we have always been. He turned. "'looked mockingly at Faradan, lowered his voice. "'Remember that, cousin, when you're face to face with my Ganima. "'Remember that when you whisper of love and soft things, "'when you are most tempted by the habits of my peace and my contentment. "'Your back will remain exposed.' "'Turning from them, he strode down the steps into the waiting courtier's picked them up in his wake like satellites, and left the hall. Ganema once more took Faridun's hand, but her gaze looked beyond the far end of the hall long after Leto had left it. One of us had to accept the agony, she said, and he was always the stronger. We hope you've enjoyed this Macmillan Audio production of Children of Dune. Text copyright 1976 by Frank Herbert. Production copyright 2007 by Macmillan Audio. All rights reserved.